was a great pastor. His name was John Wycliffe. Uh, he was a 14th century preacher from Lutterworth in England. And he's often called the morning star of the Reformation. He proclaimed salvation uh, through faith alone in Christ alone. And he wanted people in local churches to do things like read the Bible from themsel for themselves and tell other people all about Jesus. And he was a great pastor, but he was opposed. He was opposed not by atheists, but by pastors. He was vilified, not by those of other religions, but by those who claimed to be of the same religion. His projects, like transform, uh, translating the Bible into the language of the common folk of the day, left many church leaders in his day and in his area and his nation seething. His teaching, like holding the Bible and not the Pope as the supreme authority over the church, led many ministers to badmouth him. In fact, opposition was at one time so intense that Pope Martin V ordered Wycliffe's execution. The really strange thing about that was that Wycliffe had already died 80 years before that. So, not to be outdone, he had the bones dug up and then burnt to a crisp. That's how vehement uh, the hatred of Wycliffe was. It strikes me today that we might have forgotten just how much opposition to the spread of the gospel comes not from unbelievers necessarily, but from those who might call themselves believers. That's surprising because we think that opposition generally comes from unbelievers, like Mr. Edinburgh, your regular materialistic, gym-going, latte-drinking neighbor. But I'm not sure that that's the case. I think Mr. Edinburgh is more likely to be more agnostic, or at least he's minding his own business. He doesn't really believe in God, but he's, he's not kind of squaring up and persecuting those who spread the gospel. He needs to hear the gospel. Or maybe we think that opposition comes from Mr. Secular Humanist, your parliament lobbying, head teacher, bugging, David Robertson, emailing, atheist. He's a tiny minority with a big influence on local authority. That's problematic in itself. But is that the main source of opposition that we face when we share the gospel? I'm not sure. I've not, I personally have not come up against many non-Christians who would claim to be the kind of Dawkinite, militant, atheistic type. Yet I have come up against opposition from those who would call themselves believers, regular church goers, from clergy who reject the authority of the word of God and claim a different hermeneutic, a different way of understanding and interpreting it now so that it looks and feels altogether different today. To church members who badmouth anyone who profess to believe Biblical doctrines held firmly in a conservative sense. Isn't that what we've been seeing recent, in recent years with the Church of Scotland's debate on homosexuality and marriage? The bad-mouthing of those who hold a, uh, to a, 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 a conservative view of the Bible we've seen is terrible. 
And of course, churches who by conviction hold to the plain teaching of the Bible as truth are maligned as fundamentalist bigots. Well, I think we need to be aware of this if we're going to press on as a local church unhindered in our attempts to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. As we seek to see the spread of the gospel in this city and beyond its borders too. And Acts 5 helps us. Acts 5 takes a scalpel to the religious opposition. It shows us what's behind it. But it also shows us that religious opposition need not be the, something that hinders, but actually helps the spread of the gospel. Two surprises in here. So let's keep our Bibles open at Acts 5 and take a scalpel to this religious opposition. What's going on in the heart of religion, religious opponents, according to Luke? Number one, jealousy. Jealousy. This is a surprising heart of religious opposition. Luke tells us in verse 17, the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Now, when I read that during the week, I was surprised. It is surprising, isn't it? Jealousy. Jealousy is an emotion you experience when someone has what you really want. It's what you experience when you... or. It's, it's what you experience when you want to protect something that belongs to you. So what do these guys, these religious leaders want? And what do they want to protect? I think we see two things in here. First thing would be popularity. The high priest was meant to be the main man in religious terms. And the Sadducees, well, they were, they were theological powerhouses in the day. And together, high priest and Sadducees ran the temple operation. They ran the worship of God, of the people of God, by the people of God. But power is a dangerous thing to those who have it, especially if someone threatens to take it away. And that's exactly what's happening here. These were the guys who had gravitas. These were the ones that people listened to and followed. But look with me in verses 12 to 16. What is this but a picture of growing popularity of these disciples? They're the ones who are increasing in their gravitas, the crowd fears them, but at the same time thinks highly of them, as it says in verse 13. They're the ones that people are following. Verse 14 says more and more people are coming to faith. So people are making a choice to leave behind Judaism for Christianity. But the, their, their popularity outshines even that as the high priest. He might have been an A-lister in Jerusalem, but no one was fighting for street position for a piece of his shadow. But they were. For Peter. And verse 16 tells us even further still that the crowds gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. That is the first sign that these guys and this teaching is going global. We were promised that, weren't we? In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. The first sign that this gospel is about to breach through, burst through the borders of Jerusalem, the city itself. It's a great thing to see. And Luke says to us then in verse 17, all of this ignited jealousy in these religious leaders. The popularity of the apostles diminishes theirs. The ministry of the apostles belittles theirs. And the heart that loves power and status struggles with that. It's jealous for that. It's like 
Iago in Shakespeare's Othello where he says of Cassio, he has a beauty in his life that makes me ugly. Well, jealousy unrestrained is a terrible sin. It moves you to treat the one you're jealous of with contempt, even hatred. So you not only wish that you had what they have, you hope that they lose it. That's wicked. You might even try to make that happen. That too is wicked. That's what these religious leaders do. So it's not just their popularity, of course, that the religious leaders want to protect. It's their, secondly, their authority. The high priest and the Sadducees, as I said, run the show. Together with the Pharisees, they make up the Sanhedrin, the 70 strong elders' courts of Jerusalem. They run the show. They were all in charge, but it's apparent that their authority is diminishing also, while the apostles are growing in theirs. And this too contributes to their jealousy. What in the text indicates a lack of authority? Where do you get that from? Well, think about the temple itself. These guys led the temple operation. It's their jurisdiction, they control it. But where does the church gathering in verse 12? Well, they meet on that nicely shaded area on the eastern side of the temple. All 3,000 plus of them gathering there daily. This is no underground church. Covertly arranging secret meetings. Thousands are gathering there to praise God in public. So the religious leaders would consider that a defiant act. A challenge, if you like, to their authority. Then think about the law that they lay down. Acts 4 verse 18 has told us that they had already issued a judicial order to the apostles. Don't ever speak in the name of Jesus Christ again, they said. But what do we find the apostles doing in chapter 5? Testifying to the truth about Jesus. Not being sneaky about it. They're in the same place, doing the same thing every single day. And they see this as a defiance of their authority. So they try to assert control by arresting them. We'll show them who's boss, they say. But even in their, even this, the the fact that they have to arrest them twice parades their powerlessness before us. They have no authority. Verse 18, they arrest the apostles and put them in jail. Okay, that looks a little bit like they've got authority. But in verse 19, an angel opens the door and lets them out. Do you know what's really funny about that? Sadducees don't believe in angels. (laughs) That was great. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Well, then you have this this humiliating episode of the gathering of this 70-strong court of of the Sanhedrin. Now, there were tensions in there. You get hints of this. If you've read through any of the gospel accounts, the tensions between the, the, the Sadducees, who had theological issues, did not believe in angels or a resurrection, and the Pharisees, who did believe in resurrection, etc. There were theological differences, tensions within the place. Okay? They all got together. The 70 strong court of the Sanhedrin, the high priest or the Sadducees, bring them in. Bring the apostles in. Uh, there's a problem with that. They're not here. What? You can imagine it. Where are they? Uh, they're in the temple uh, doing the same thing that they've been doing the whole time. Verse 25 says they're standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And eventually they try and bring them in nice and quietly. Uh, Peter, um, See that escape from prison thing? Okay, we're not quite sure how that happened, but let's not worry about it. Would you mind following us? You know, they didn't force them in. Please, would you accompany us? Please, please. Let's not make a fuss here. 
They don't have authority. Their authority is diminishing. And when they, in verse 28, eventually bring them in and read out the charges to the apostles, you, you see there are two charges. There's disobedience. We gave you strict orders not to teach in the name. In this name, they can't even bring themselves to say Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. And then uh, the second thing they say is, the second charge is of slander. You are determined to make us guilty of this man. Again, they can't even bring themselves to say Jesus. This man's blood. Well, Peter replies, we must obey God rather than men. Who's an authority here? It's not them. God is, he's the prince and the saviour. He's dishing out repentance and forgiveness of sins. And you want us to be quiet? And by the way, on the second charge of slander, you have. You are. You are guilty of this man's blood. You killed him, God raised him. You condemned him, God cleared his name. And Peter's response is a rebuke. He's speaking authoritatively to them. This uneducated Galilean fisherman is teaching the learned theologians the truth that they should already know. That Jesus reigns. And despite their feeble opposition, the gospel will prevail. The church will be built and the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is what religious people forget. Religious people who don't really read the Bible or hold the Bible as authoritative or sufficient for life and doctrine in personal life or in church life. This is what those who would claim some kind of freedom or liberty with interpretation would really say. This is what some theologians in Bible colleges forget. This is what those who play fast and loose with the Bible forget. That this is what those who deny a literal hell or the seriousness of sin forget. And at the heart of it is often the desire to retain some element of power. Authority. Popularity. Rather, they would rather preserve some shallow air of power that ministry can provide. They would rather retain some shallow popularity with organizations like Stonewall or some other anti-Christian local authority counselor because they think it gives them kudos. It doesn't. And if there is no repentance, then they will be called to account. For they don't see that their authority only exists insofar as they stand under the word of God in submission to Jesus as the one true king. But truth like that is what threatens guys like this and tips their jealousy into rage. Because verse 33 tells us that their pride had just popped. They blew a gasket. And in their fury, they wanted to put them to death. They wanted to do to them what they did to Jesus. Have them killed. But there is in this passage a warning. A warning to those who oppose God and the spread of his gospel to the ends of the earth. And it's found in this little speech by a Pharisee called Gamaliel. Now, he's a respected guy. He's a master teacher in Israel. Most 
teachers were called rabbis in that day. He was called Rabon, master teacher. He was the bee's knees back then. And we know, as we read later in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul learned his Judaism from this man. And as jealous rage stirs up in this council against the apostles, he stands up and says, hang on a minute, whoa, 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 let's just, let's just take a breather. Uh, Peter and the apostles, would you mind leaving us for a second so I can have a chat? And he has a conversation with them. He, he says some things that are wonderfully true, but it's only really half true. But he, his basic, the basic gist of what he says in this little speech is, Look, there's been some guys who've risen up before. We've killed them. Their followers have dispersed. Let's just give this time. Let these guys go. Their leader is dead. Let's see what happens with it. And he says two things about it, basically. If this is of God, you'll not be able to stop it. Well, that is true. The mission of God is unstoppable. The church of Jesus Christ is the only institution on the face of the earth that has an absolute guarantee for future success. Not every local church has that, I would add, but the true church will always prevail and never die. Trying to stop it is like standing on the tracks with your hand up in front of a freight train traveling at 80. You have no chance. No chance. So he's right about that. If this is of God, you'll not be able to stop it. It is the spread, this mission of God is unstoppable. The second thing he says is, if if this is of God, you'll end up fighting against God. And let's face it, that is not going to end well. Who has ever gone toe-to-toe with God and won? Acts 2, not Acts 2, I've got Acts in the brain. Psalm 2, that's what I meant. Psalm 2 tells us that uh, this, there's this wonderful picture in there of why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain, the king's rising up against the anointed one. In other words, all these different people are pulling on their gloves and getting into the ring with God, <laughs> thinking that they can stand him, thinking they can take him. The one in heaven, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. It's just ridiculous. Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is almighty. God cannot be thwarted. God cannot lose. So we see in this text, the jealousy is rooted in the popularity and authority. Those are the things they want to protect. There's a warning in there that comes through this Gamaliel. It's one of these ones where there's a number of times in the Gospels and in Acts where someone stands up and says something that sounds mildly spiritual. There's a bit of truth in it, but it's not quite true. So you have Caiaphas. Better that one man die for the nation than, you know. Oh yeah, that is true. That is what would happen. He didn't understand what he was saying. But he had a different end in mind. We need to see that opposition to our mission to preach the gospel is to be expected from all sorts of different arenas even from religious types. And to see that sometimes, oftentimes, behind that opposition is jealousy. The question is, will it hinder the spread of the gospel? Well, no. In fact, it helps true believers, even makes them happy. Because this is a surprising effect of religious opposition. It's joy. This is the second thing we're looking at tonight. Joy. The surprising effect 
of religious opposition. And it is surprising, isn't it? The disciples have been arrested twice and delivered twice. The first time they were released, they suffered no harm. The second time they were released, they did. They were flogged, it says. Sounds like all the apostles were flogged, 39 lashes each. Now, in our experience, um, opposition plus physical harm is like the worst combination ever. You know, threats produce anxiety in us. Um, Pain has a grief element to it. We live in a health and safety culture. I mean, we do anything that we possibly can to avoid danger. Self-protective as we are, we want to avoid, as Christians, even the mildest persecution. We hate the prospect that even a friend of ours, even a stranger might say something to us, whether we're on the outreach table out the front or handing out the good news or or whether we're chatting to a a friend at work. We're self-protective. We hate the thought that someone might even say, you believe something like that? Even inferring that we're stupid? But Luke points something out here that demonstrates our fears really are unfounded. Because opposition produces two things. It produces a profound identification with Jesus and a greater determination to proclaim Jesus. Let's look at the first of those, a profound identification with Jesus. Verse 42 tells us that, uh, 41 tells us that the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They suffered the grace of disgrace for Jesus in his name. Jesus himself suffered at the hands of wicked men. Though he was good beyond compare, doing good never seen before or since, in their jealousy, the religious leaders of the day had him crucified. They had been opposing him all the while he was um, increasing in his authority and popularity. They tried to trap him. They tried to subtly undermine his character. They tried to turn the crowds against them. Well, there's this very insightful part of John chapter 12 after the raising of Lazarus from the dead and people are rejoicing at this and and more people are coming to follow Jesus and they say, see, this is getting us nowhere. The whole world is going after him. So they plotted to kill him. Christians can experience something similar. We find ourselves opposed by people who really should be on our side. But the truth is, we are fundamentally different. Because by grace, we love another Lord. And identifying with Jesus in this way, Luke indicates through the description of the apostles rejoicing that it's a privilege. Now, they're not weirdly masochistic they don't enjoy pain I'm sure they weren't loving it as they were strapped face down on the ground receiving these blows but it is an honour to suffer for him Jesus himself said in Matthew 5 blessed are those 
who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Why is this? Why is this something that brings joy? Because, Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. When you dignify the trial and do not deny Jesus, yet go on your way rejoicing, you declare your allegiance to him, and you remember how glad you are that he suffered in your place. Do you experience that when you're opposed? When the conversation with your family member does not go well and they criticize or say harsh things. Maybe they say spiteful, hurtful things. We can have a profound joy in identifying with Jesus in this. And that drives us deeper into him. Deeper into our fellowship with him. And our experience of him. That's why we can have joy. The second thing it does for us is produces a greater determination to proclaim Jesus. Verse 42 says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. I love, when you look carefully at this text, look at the positioning of the disciple in some of the repeated phrases that you see in here. It sheds light on our understanding of this text. Verse 12, where are the disciples? Where are they and what are they doing? They're in the temple proclaiming the good news about Jesus. Verse 20, where are they? They've been released from prison by the angel. Where are they going? What are they going to do? On the way to the temple to do what? To proclaim Jesus. Verse 25, when they need to be arrested for the second time, where are they? What are they doing? They are in the temple preaching about Jesus. And at the end, verse 42, where are they? In the temple preaching Jesus. They never ever stopped. Was this opposition able to hinder them? No. It was unstoppable. With courage and with God's help, they never stopped. Never stopped proclaiming Jesus. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, it's wonderful that you're here. Um, this message truly is unstoppable because this message really is true. I wonder if you noticed in our reading earlier from verse 20, the way the angel described this message of, that we talk about as Christians called the gospel, which basically just means good news. The angel says, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. Life. 
That's what this message is all about. You might very well have a heartbeat. I, very, I actually hope you do. <laughs> that didn't come out quite right. Uh, you may well have a heartbeat, but you are never truly alive until you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. You might be breathing in and out and in and out, but you're never truly alive until you have been united to him in faith through the forgiveness of your sins. Your sins leave you dead. Jesus and his death on the cross and the forgiveness that is extended to us through that, that's the message of life. For you to get from your position of death to your experience, a new experience of new life, being born again, you've got to come to Jesus. And you've got to receive the forgiveness that he hands out and extends out to you by believing in his name and trusting in his blood. Because he shed it to take away your sins. That might sound a bit weird. If you don't understand that, please come and chat with us afterwards. The shedding of his blood was necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. It's key to this message of life. John would tell you that Jesus himself is life. John, who wrote one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, said, In him was life. Life. Definitive life. And his light was the light. His life was the light of men. Have you believed in him? Have you trusted in him? Or we pray you would. And brothers and sisters, we need to understand and get it into our heads that yes, whenever we preach the gospel, whenever we share it one-to-one with folks or have an opportunity with a bigger group perhaps, we will experience opposition. Yeah, Mr. Edinburgh with his, with his he's just not really that bothered. He doesn't really want, maybe doesn't really want to hear it. We might face some opposition for him. We might face the opposition from Mr. Secular Humanist. And we will face opposition from those who would call themselves religious but have a, I don't know. It's a light version that really is not, a, not the genuine article at all. But oh, that we would be able to be charged with verse 28. Wouldn't it be a glorious thing for people to come up to people in Charlotte Chapel and say, you have filled this city with your teaching. I think that would be a glorious charge. And I think we should make it our ambition. Because there are plenty of people around us in our city and throughout the nations who have never heard this message and yet who need to hear it. And we are part of this great chain of gospel conversations that have gone on from Acts 1 verse 8. You will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we've had conversation after conversation, sermon after sermon, gospel call after gospel call, and it's reached us, but we are not the terminus point. It reaches further still. We must take this gospel to our city and beyond. Maybe we feel concerned about opposition, averse to it. Acts 5. Luke tells us in Acts 5 tonight, it does not hinder the spread of the gospel because the spread of the gospel is unstoppable. In fact, it helps it. It helps it. 
Let's take a couple of minutes, just one minute to get in, in prayer before we sing and pray to God. Uh, let's take a minute just to pray over how this, how you might apply what has been said tonight.